This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 97. And the quote of the day is from Buddha who said, Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one getting burned. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session, as every session, is brought to you by Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. Check them out at bosodrumsticks.com and use the promo code PODCAST and you can save 15% off your entire order. Also, if you dig the podcast, do me a favor and head over to iTunes and just leave a rating or a review. Uh, you can just go into iTunes and and give me an honest rating and feedback. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And also, uh, it helps the podcast show up higher in the rankings in iTunes. So if you're into that, please, uh, or if you're into the podcast, please do me that favor and just head over there and leave a rating and review. The interview that I have today, I'm really, really excited about. It's Mark Juliana, and a lot of people have been asking to get Mark on the podcast, and it took us a little while to line it up, and I'm really, really glad that he's here. I got to meet Mark. Uh, coincidentally, we live very close to each other, but I met him in California and hooked up this interview, and like I said, a lot of people have been asking about it, and I wanted to get him on the podcast as well. Uh, he was just on the cover of Modern Drummer a few months ago. He released two albums on the same day that we're going to talk about, and he's got a ton of other stuff in the works as well. So let's get into this interview without further ado, Mr. Mark Juliana. Mark, what's going on, man? Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. How's it going? It's uh, it's going well. It's great to have you on the show. It took us a little while to get it lined up, but you know, these things happen. Yeah, thanks for being patient. Ah, oh, man, no, no worries at all. Uh, you know, first of all, I want to tell you how much of a pleasure it is to have you because one, you're, uh, you're, I think you're an amazing player. I think you have a very unique style, uh, which is cool. You were just on the cover of Modern Drummer. You released two records, so there's definitely a lot of stuff going on with you. Uh, and we're going to get into all that. But before that, I always like to get a little bit of backstory on how people got into playing. So what's your story? How did you get into playing and, uh, how did you, you know, sort of forge your career doing this? Yeah, I, I started playing when I was 15. Um, not for any specific reason, but, um, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I looked up the local drum teacher for some lessons and um, I got really lucky. His name's Joe Bergamini. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an incredible teacher, really the reason I'm playing drums today. Uh, again, I, I started more as a curious habit more than anything else. There's no, right. there's no history of music or musicians in my immediate family. So um, I certainly didn't um, enter this realm with any expectations or anything. So um, you know, the studying with Joe, uh, really inspired me and he really pushed me to, um, you know, to attack this, this instrument. And, um, throughout, throughout high school, I just kind of made sure I was in my, had my hands in every possible situation. So, you know, just what any public high school offers of, you know, marching band and jazz band, concert band, pit orchestra. If, if the choir needed a drummer for a song, I, you know, I, I volunteered. So it was 
I was really, really hungry and, um, you know, had a rock band with my friends. But, uh, but I think what's important to note is this entire time it was, you know, kind of a, it was still a hobby. You know, I was just doing it right. for, for the joy that it brought me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have two older brothers who, who went to, they played division one baseball in college you know, and you had a really high level. And, um, I was kind of, I'm a big sports fan and I played sports all through high school, but I was always kind of in their shadow happily, you know, it was, it was cool to be their, their little brother, you know, Mm -hmm. but when I stumbled upon drums, it was like, I found this little, this little place that I could go and, and be myself, you know, and, and kind of forge, forge some new territory for myself. So, um, yeah, so fast forward, I, I did four years with Joe all through high school. And actually my senior year in high school, I started studying with John Riley as well, who was about an hour drive north into New York state. So I'd go see him about once a month. Then I auditioned for some colleges, um, you know, didn't got rejected from a few jazz programs, which is a nice chip on my shoulder that I, <laughs> that I carry around. Nice. Um, but, but, uh, for good reason. I mean, I was, um, I was a young kid still just trying to find my way. I, I was not bitter at all. Like, um, I, um, it was, it was still, I was definitely finding my way and, um, Eventually, I was on the waiting list at William Patterson, which is also in New Jersey, and I, I ended up getting accepted. So whoever that kid was that decided not to go, you know, I have to thank him for giving me a spot. Um, It'd be interesting to find out who that, exactly, who that is. Exactly. So, um, you know, and at that point, if I, if I didn't get in there, you know, I got into NYU and couldn't afford that and you know, got rejected from Rutgers. I think they took one guy, you mm-hmm. know, a semester. So, you know, before I got into William Patterson, I was, you know, the other option was to not study music in school, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe I just would have gotten some other degree and my life would have gone somewhere very different. Um, but I got into William Patterson and John was, was there for my first year. So I can, I continued to study with him every week. And that was just incredible. Exactly what I needed. So inspiring. Um, really, you know, very diverse teachings. Um, and you know, I feel like Joe, Joe really built the foundation that I needed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of gave me the, the perfect starter kit. Um, and then I, when I was with John, he really kind of pushed and inspired me to find a little bit of my own way. And it was, it was around the time I was really getting into jazz too. So, yeah, so that, that, that chunk of time in college, um, was really, you know, the breeding ground for my, like, it it wasn't until maybe halfway through college that I really, uh, understood that, you know, I, I think, I think I was, you know, music was, was going to be my life. Right. Now you had mentioned that Joe sort of gave you the, the building block, so to speak, um, of your playing. 
So for the listeners out there, what do you what do you consider some of the building blocks and what do you think that that really helped you to be prepared to be studying with with uh, with John Riley? I think, um, you know, we, we focused a lot on technique, um, lots of uh, work on the pad. You know, it wasn't until a couple months in that we actually sat at the drum set. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was a lot of rudimental work, lots of snare drum studies, lots of technique, you know, really, really simple stick control type type things that help you really put a microscope on your technique. And, and I think um, for whatever reason... Um, you know, those, those stereotypically boring things were not boring to me. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I was excited to get home and work on, you know, flam accents or excited to work on the free stroke really slow on the pad. So I was just hungry. It was this new world that, that, um, I hadn't been exposed to before. And, and, uh, again, um, do in large part to Joe's inspiration and, and teaching. Hmm. Yeah. Because once, you know, it's, I, I've went through the same struggle that I guess everybody does, uh, excluding you, uh, of, of, you know, dreading pad work Mm -hmm. and, you know, just being like, but you know what I started, I started to fall in love with the process or started to fall in love with the results. So then in turn started to fall in love with the process of, you know, all right, I can't wait to go home and, and practice this stuff because it's going to, I'm going to see the, all the results behind the kit, which is what I'm really addicted to is the results of it. So, right. Right. <laughs> so now, so you're in college. Um, so where did you go from there? Um, let's see. Um, I guess one of the, one of the first, one of the first breaks I had or, or the first gig that kind of you know, uh, had me touring and, and whatnot was with bass player Avishai Cohen, who I was a big fan of, um, before even meeting him, I was a big fan of, he, he was playing in Chikoria's band at the time. And he had his own records that, um, that I loved. It was Jeff Ballard on those, who's one of my heroes. And, uh, um, you know, my, my, my roommate, was a bass player at school and he actually had taken a few lessons with Avishai. So we'd go to his gigs and we'd just kind of hang afterwards. And, you know, he didn't even know I played drums for a while. I was just the kid at the shows and we would hang out and, you know, we built this, this nice relationship just from, just from kind of being around, mm-hmm. you know, no, there was no hustling involved. It's not like I, gave him a card or anything, you know, it was, I was just around and, mm-hmm. and I was around for selfish reasons. You know, I was, I was getting not only great joy from just seeing those shows, but I was learning so much. I mean, to sit next to Jeff Ballard, you know, a couple times a week at Smalls is can't really think of a better education than that. Right. You know? Right. All right. So, um, so eventually, you know, we started hanging more and more and, um, Avishai kind of on a whim came out to Jersey one night for this, for this party we were having for a gig and we just kind of jammed and, uh, and that was really fun. So, 
we started this rock band called Gadu, and um, we would play every Monday night at the C Note, which no longer exists. That was on Avenue C and Tenth Street, mm. and um, and it was really fun, really really fun. And uh, and then my senior year, this is kind of a you know a condensed timeline. Of course, my senior right. year, he asked me to go to LA with him for a week and work on his record called Lila. So played on about half of that and helped with some production. And then um, right after I graduated, which was May 2003, um, he invited me to be in his, in his trio, in his touring band. So awesome. yeah, the timing couldn't have been better. I mean, I graduated in May and then in September we were on the road and, you know, we were busy, and you know, let's see. So I was with him until 2008, and and um, you know there would be chunks in there where, uh, on and off, of course. But you know there were a few years where we'd be on the road, you know, four or five months out of the year. So, and predominantly in Europe. Um, so, you know, playing with him was was invaluable. But also, you know, I had many, many firsts uh, within his band, uh, all the traveling, seeing new places, uh, being challenged by the music, um, learning. Yeah, really, really just learning a lot about about life, you know, right. so it right. was um, it's really special. There's no there's no um, you can't fabricate that experience. You know, there's nothing you can do at home to, um, you know, prepare or really, like I said, fabricate that, that world, mm -hmm. you know, um, you can't, um, uh, practice, you know, taking two flights and changing time zones and being tired and, you know, missing dinner and going straight to sound check and playing two sets where your monitor doesn't work or something like that, you know. <laughs> You right. can't, it's just, it's those kinds of things that are, you know, when you talk about experience and gaining experience, I think I used to get frustrated that people would make this big deal about, oh, you need experience. Well, it's, it's just more of those things that, um, you, I feel like experience is just getting rid of a lot of firsts, getting them out of the way. So, you know, you can learn from, uh, all these experiences and, you know, learn from either your mistakes or ways to prepare yourself better for all these these situations that are out of your control that sometimes come up um, and take you, you know, take, you know, I, I wish every time I sat at the drums, I felt as comfortable as I did in my practice room, you know, right. but right. of course, that's not the case. So now more and more, I almost feel more comfortable on you know, a house kit in wherever it may be, you know, in Madrid where the heads are kind of beat up and all I have are my symbols and I just kind of make it work because I've, I've, I've definitely played on other drums much more than I've played on my own drums sure. in, in, in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that. I, I consider that a welcome challenge and it's just, um, more, uh, yeah, it's just to to just get to the essence of the music and try to express yourself on whatever you you have in front of you. Mm -hmm. You know, 
there's a couple things I that I thought was interesting about that. One, you know, you don't really think about it. Like, man, I, I'm probably like you like you said, you're playing other people's drums more than you're playing your own. So mm-hmm. whatever you're doing in the practice room is definitely going to feel different uh, out on the road anyway. Or what you're doing in the practice room, you're going to say, man, this feels weird. You know, mm-hmm. inside of the practice room, you might say, "Man, I'm I'm missing those <laughs> those beat up heads and the exactly. You know the it's it's too safe. Yeah, right, right. You're like, man, I yeah. It's just it's interesting when you look at it like that. And also, you mentioned about getting to the to the essence of the music, and that is something that I always like to talk about um, because it's such an intangible thing. It's not, you know, it's it's hard to practice that kind of stuff, but. I want to pick your brain about it a little bit about getting to the essence of the, of the music and getting, you know, to that point where you're playing more musically rather than just playing beats. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's your, what's your approach to that? Well, I, let's see. And I realize that's a loaded question. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think um, this answer, hopefully, hopefully works. I've just realized for myself that in order to play my best, um, I need to be confident. Mm -hmm. And so once I identify that feeling that that's in, in, in my most joyous musical moments, what's the, what's the one thing that was always there, whether it's a house kid, my kid, this symbol, that whatever, is that I was confident. So how can I um, recreate that feeling every time I sit Mm -hmm. down, you know? So what are the things that I need to feel confident? And, um, you know, the first thing I think about is just, um, you know, the the fundamental elements of of playing. So I think about... um, you know, being able to play, just having a great sound or more importantly, a sound that's appropriate for the given situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to play with dynamics, you know, appropriate dynamics. I want to be able to be expressive in a wide range of dynamics. I want to, I need to, um, you know, have command of the instrument to a degree that, that, I feel confident to take chances in the moment and rely on the homework that I've done where, where these things will, they'll be there for me when I reach for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, but that's a fine line. Cause I don't want to, I'm, I'm really afraid of practicing anything too specific because, um, I'm afraid I'm going to get too attached to it. And then therefore I'll present it in the music in the same way that I've practiced it. which is untrue to the moment, you know? So, so it's this fine line of like doing my homework and working really hard so that, um, you know, those tools will be there for me in the moment, but I don't want to have like licks to call on. Right. You know, so, Mm -hmm. so kind of, um, riding that line and then, um, yeah, just, just knowledge of the music I'm playing you know, like knowing the songs inside and out so that, um, uh, all these things add to the most important thing. One of the most important things 
is if all those things are in place, then I have that much more energy that I can dedicate to listening Mm -hmm. to the other musicians and the music around me. I think um, when I was younger, I would spend a lot of my energy listening to myself and making sure what I was doing was being communicated because I wasn't so confident that it was going to come out. So I needed to really keep a close watch on everything I was playing to make sure it was what I intended, you know? Right. But now, I, you know, when I'm confident in a situation, I can play with a spirit that, that um, you know, can just be a little more, make these, these decisions um, with more clarity and trust that the things will be there so I can really, um, again, you know, be with the other musicians and, and as long as I'm with them, then I'm just trusting my, my musicianship and intuition that, that I'd be making, I'm making decisions that are appropriate with the the decisions they're making. Right. That makes perfect sense. Cool. (laughs) That was a good way of explaining it too. Yeah. It's, it's like, how, how can you get out of your own way? Right. And, and, so that you can really, I mean, if you're not listening, then what's, what's happening, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I do understand that, you know, um, we have a lot going on in our limbs and in our mind that, um, it, it is really, um, it's a challenge to, to free ourselves from all those details in that moment to, to give ourselves room to, to just be a part of the ensemble, you know, but, but it isn't until that you can really play from that selfless place where the real, the real music happens. Mm -hmm. Now you had mentioned about practicing and, and over practicing and, and it not being true to the, to the moment when it comes out in your playing sometimes. So what's a, what's a typical practice routine look like for you? Cause I get a lot of people, that ask, you know, when you're interviewing these people, I, we want to know what they practice and how they practice more importantly. Uh, so what's your approach to practicing? It's, it's really boring because <laughs> I found that, um, you know, the more I can make my practicing feel like practicing, the less likely I will um, be tempted to use the stuff I'm practicing in the music in its original form because it's meaning, um, I'm, I'm working on things in a really dry, basic fashion. Mm-hmm. So um, I wouldn't dare, I hope I wouldn't dare, you know, play a slow double stroke roll uh, on the snare drum for eight minutes on a gig. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and those are, so I'm, I'm really trying to target specific things, um, just, you know, checking in on my, on my technique making sure my sound is, is in a nice place and just being relaxed and, and really just like reaffirming my relationship with the drums every time I sit down mm-hmm. and some days feel better than others. And, and, um, you know, it's really always working on time. You know, I like to, <clears throat> I found the thing that, that keeps me on my toes the most is, um, you know, working on changing the subdivision or changing rates within a given tempo. So, um, you know, to just set the metronome at 
something slow, you know, 60-ish, and, and just play eighth notes and then move to triplets and move to 16th notes and move back to triplets, really relaxed and patient, and um, really try to play them in a precise way um, just to, again, you know, build a relationship with how each one should feel. And, um, you know, I found, like you were talking about, the, the reward of results. I mean, when I started practicing like this, it's like I started feeling it really deeply. I, I think, um, you know, the steps that I w- was taking um, with this kind of practicing, they were smaller steps, but I think they were irreversible, meaning right. like once you take that step forward, you're there. That's your new home base. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can't be unlearned. So I think sometimes when I was younger, I'd be practicing really sophisticated things and, and, uh, you know, a little, a little kind of, um, maybe it not so focused, you know, so maybe I'm working on, you know, playing over a certain vamp in 11, eight, just, just for fun, you know, and I work out some stuff over it and cool. And then, you know, six months later, that stuff has disappeared, right? you know? So this step that I seemingly took six months ago, I'm, I'm kind of back to where I was because it's, it's not stuff that a was, was maybe, um, applicable to, to the music I was playing or, I didn't really grab it in that moment. It was more, you know, the, I had the perception that I, that I kind of nailed the stuff, but it was really just like a surface level. So, Mm -hmm. you know, practicing these more basic things, I found that like, they're a little more difficult to earn these, these steps, but, but when you take those steps, they're, they're really like really rooted. Right. So now when you're taking these subdivisions, are you moving them around the kit or are you just like, just even, 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 sorry, even that, even moving them around the kit is one step closer to being tempted on how to use them in a specific way, you know? So of course, you know, with time I'll, I'll, I'll get bored and start to manipulate them. But in my mind, they're, they're variations already. Like it's really important for me to never lose sight of, um, you know, the core principle. So even just putting two eighth notes on the rack tom is a variation on the original. Right. You know, and I think um, uh, because I don't want to have I don't I don't like to think about, you know, collecting many, many individual ideas. I like to think about having a handful of really fundamental ideas. And then I'm just constantly working on ways in which to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, if you gave me the choice, I could either have 500 licks that I can only use the, the way they're given to me or five licks and I can, you know, manipulate them in seemingly infinite ways. Of course I'd choose the five, right. You know, that's, that's kind of the place that I'm playing from. And, um, I think it, you know, the, the ways you can morph an idea are in my opinion, you know, to a certain degree more important than the idea itself, because, um, you know, it's, you can like generate just basically infinite content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, 
I remember Stanton Moore talking about it, and I, and I think he says it, uh, musical mileage. So getting nice. like, you know, getting, you can take any, anything, even if you take like a paradiddle and, mm-hmm. you know, you're just working that out on the kit, then you can play it in triplet form. Then you can accent the first note, then the second note, then, you know, inside, accent it inside, accent it outside. You can, you know, and that's like, and you still haven't moved off the snare drum yet. Totally. You know, and then. I- then you can play it off the one, then off the two, and then the E, and then the uh, and like you can move this stuff around, and it's all the same pattern. Exactly, and I think I think we we tend to underestimate how powerful those those tools are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we jump to variation thirty one, where we've moved it around the toms, and it's now it's triplets, and we have the kick replacing the left hand when it's on the snare. You know, which right. is exciting, but. Um, when you take each tool individually and use the discipline to say, okay, the only thing I'm allowed to change is orchestration. And you're like, wow, Mm -hmm. this is really, that's really powerful how much I can do with just that. Or I'm only allowed to use dynamics. So it's like, oh, wow. Like I think dynamics are the most underrated musical tool we we have, you know? Um, It's amazing how you could play the same idea really quietly and it and it's kind of a brand new idea mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so um in this in this approach, I think you realize um how sometimes how little you have to do to create a new musical identity and to create interest within within your playing right i I think a good example of that is Steve Gadd, how he you know he has his his stuff, but he can play it any way he wants. He can play yep. it upside down, backwards, inside out. You know, he can, it, it doesn't matter. And he has, you know, he's taken these tools and, and mastered every aspect of them, which is amazing. And it's his stuff, right. you know? Right. <laughs> so that, that's the other, that's the other element of, you know, really trying to be honest with yourself and, and present some honest stuff and not, you know, I'm sure I've, I've, you know, played some Steve Gadd licks in my day, but they were out of, I was paying homage, you know, I'm not trying to, it's, if, you know, you got to look in the mirror and be like, okay, this isn't mine, but I think this will benefit the music right now. You know, you're, of course, we're, we're all calling on our influences, but you know, the, that really, that kind of handful of his stuff, I think, a large reason that it's so powerful is that it's truly his, you know? Right. Right. Well, I think that, that you have done an amazing job at creating things that are uniquely yours as well, because I think that you have a a definite unique style. Like if I, if, when I hear you play, I know that it's you. Cool. Um, Thanks. yeah. And that's something, there's something to definitely be said about that. So now I feel like I'm getting to the inside of how you sort of, develop that sound would you say that that's the way that you did it with using you know of sort of this minimalistic approach but wide in terms of ideas um using you know uh, certain certain things and then turning them into your own yeah you know i didn't explain that very well did i (laughs) no 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 that's cool that uh, you know one one thing is um i never sat down with the intention of like playing my own stuff or looking for my own stuff. That was never a, uh, a goal. Um, I'm, uh, it's flattering to 
to hear that, like, uh, you know, that as a, as a result of my work, but I think there's a big difference between setting that as your goal and, um, and then it just kind of appearing through the process you choose. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, it's, um, well, yeah, you know, it's with the drum set, it doesn't take that much effort. You know, with, with gear alone, you can be quote unquote original, you know, you can, you can go to Home Depot and you can buy that sheet of metal and put a hole in it. And then that's your ride symbol. And then you have, you have a, a doom Beck as your snare drum and you have a marching bass drum, two marching bass drums as, you know, double kick or something. And then, you know, you are the guy who has that kit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and you did that with a credit card and, and, you know, a little bit of creativity, but you know, if you're, if your goal was to say, okay, I'm going to be different. I'm going to have a setup that nobody else has. You know, that's a pretty surface level originality. You know what I mean? You're, you're kind of, like I said, all it took was a credit card and, and, you know, your buddy driving you to Home Depot. So, right. <laughs> um, I, I think Steve Gadd's a great example. You know, he, he, the sound of his drums, we've heard that sound before, you know, it's, he's coming from a, pretty traditional place and his identity is is you know immediate mm-hmm. when he plays so i really think it's um of course you know touch on an instrument and and the nuances like that but um i love i love trying to you know if you can find yourself within a traditional sound, I think that's a, a deeper, uh, a deeper, uh, you know, arrival to mm-hmm. originality. Sure. sure. So, uh, you know, for me, a lot of, a lot of things came from as much as I would, um, you know, look to my heroes for inspiration as what to do. I also looked to certain things as what not to do. And it didn't mean I didn't like those things. It just meant that I had oftentimes had such great respect for those things that I didn't even want to get close to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this, okay, you know, that's that world. I'm going to stay away from there because what, what do I have to add to that, to that, you know, world? Right. So a lot of times by deciding what not to do, it just pushed me to another place, which I didn't know where it would lead, but it, it, by definition would typically lead to somewhere different. Right. And if you do that enough, if you do that with your, your, um, the way you set up the kit, you know, when I was in college, I, I challenged everything. I, I challenged like, why is the snare drum between our legs? You know, Mm -hmm. why is the hi-hat over here? Why is the ride over here? And, you know, for very good reason. You know, the instrument is 100 years old, and over time, these things have become commonplace because they make the most sense, you know? Right, right. (laughs) But every now and then, I would come across something like, why do I need a rack tom? And then I would remove the rack tom, and maybe I wouldn't miss it, you know? I didn't didn't miss that, that sound, or it wasn't needed in the music I was playing. 
right? Um, stuff like that. So as I started to remove things, whether it was from my setup or remove things from my vocabulary, um, I was forced to fill those gaps with new information. Mm-hmm. Um, or God forbid, leave space, <laughs> you know, Whoa. which is, which is uh, typically what's, what's the most that? musical decision you can, <laughs> you can make. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I had a few, also when I was younger, I would do some practicing where if I played anything that, you know, remi- strongly reminded me of one of my influences, I had to stop and put the sticks down, you know, and then, and restart. Just becoming much more in tune with the the stuff I'm playing, right. and weed out the stuff that wasn't me, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because due to the nature of of our instrument, you know, you practice a lot, and it's a very physical physical activity, and you know, you there's a lot of muscle memory involved and it actually, the more you practice, the more effort it takes to, to, um, you know, keep yourself from just going into, into autopilot, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, I did work a lot on that and try to really, really, you know, I'd record myself and listen back and listen to my tendencies and try to free myself of the tendencies and, and that could be a little scary at times, but but that's when I really called on what we were talking about in the beginning. I was like, okay, my, you know, well, no, I've, I've been working hard on my time. My time is strong. That feels good. And I feel good about my sound and I'm playing with good dynamics and I'm supporting the music around me. It's like, what else? What else? You know, I'm good. I'm safe. So now start taking chances and look for some new stuff. Um knowing that, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I, I fall back onto my safety net of my, my fundamentals, you right. know, but I'd, I'd much rather be taking chances and failing than just playing the stuff that I know will, will come out. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a, it's a good way of looking at it too. Because failing is, is, what what is that if if my fundamentals are there to catch me then what can go wrong the only thing that could go wrong is um not being present not being in the moment and playing some some premeditated stuff you know right right totally so i want to switch gears a little bit because i want to talk about you put out two records and i can't remember who said it and i wish i did but i just remember them saying Man, I'm I'm trying to put out one record, and this dude just put out two, and he was talking about you, and I forget who it was. It was another drummer. Yeah, yeah. It is. It escapes me. Um, so you record or you release two records on the same day. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit, and what what the the reasoning was behind that, and how the hell did you do that? Yeah, um, you just do it. You know, <laughs> um, I, you know, so I have a a few releases under my name over the last chunk of years. And each time I started to make a record, it was with the intention that I would release it myself. Mm -hmm. And then also each time I'd get about two way, two thirds of the way through and run out of either money or time or motivation or whatever. And, and, um, 
And I was fortunate enough to, to have help with the releases later in the process. So I'm very grateful for those opportunities. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, still wasn't my initial intention. So in this case, I said, okay, I'm going to start a label, whatever that means, which it means I'm just going to have an outlet to make and release music, you know, with, with zero middleman, right? So Mm -hmm. I call the shots in regards to, uh, when it's going to come out, how it's going to sound every, every, every detail I will take on that responsibility so that, um, I know as I start this process, I, it's on me to finish it and see it through. Um, so I did that and I made, yeah, the, the two records, um, you know, one of them had a more compositional uh, focus called My Life Starts Now. And then one of them uh, was a collection of improvisations um, called Beat Music, the Los Angeles Improvisations. And that that was, um, Beat Music is one of my groups. And we kind of have an, a New York version and an L.A. version. So the L.A. version is Tim LaFave on bass, Jeff Babco on keyboards, and Troy Ziegler on electronics. So we had played a handful of gigs where we're just improvising, and they were like euphoric experiences. And I, I thought, I have to document the way this specific lineup plays together. Mm-hmm. So I got a studio for a day in Beverly Hills and you know went out there, and we improvised and left the studio with like three hours worth of stuff and brought it home and found my favorite moments. So, you know, so the tracks, there's 30 tracks on the record. So the tracks that you hear, um, the only, um, you know, editing is simply selecting a start time and an end time. Right. You know, so I just grabbed my favorite moments, passed it off to my buddy, Steve wall here in Jersey city, who, um, we work really closely together on, on a lot of stuff. He's a great engineer. He mixed everything, kind of gave his personality, and, and that was the record. So <clears throat> on the other side of the coin, My Life Starts Now was a much more traditional way of making a record where I wrote a repertoire, wrote you know, 12, maybe 15 songs, and um, hired a band, Stu Brooks on bass, Yuki Hirano on keyboards. That was the core band. Those guys are incredible. They everything I brought in, they would just eat alive and really bring it to life. And so went in the studio for a couple of days. We were at the bunker in, in uh, Williamsburg. Beautiful studio. John Davis was um, engineering. Um, he plays bass in uh, JoJo's band. He oh, plays okay. bass in Nerve. So he's an incredible engineer um, with a great ear and great great taste. Um, so, yeah, that was, okay, we're in the studio for a couple of days, do a couple of days of overdubs, produce it, hook it up, you know, that, that kind of thing. So right. um, it, felt, it felt right to release them at the same time because they represented two different parts of my brain. And um, I felt equally confident about both of them, and I thought they um, were complete statements on their own, but even even more, uh, even painted a clearer picture together, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's hard to, to make a record and put your name on it. Cause I always feel like I have, I have a lot of other stuff I want to say too, 
you know. Right. <laughs> but but if I say it all on one record, it's not most likely not a very focused, um, you know, uh, record. Right. So uh, by really committing myself to each vision, it was much easier to finish. And uh, yeah, so I just put them out myself and. Uh, it feels great to know that at any moment I have an outlet for for some new music, and right. and I actually have another record that's done, and I'm gonna release in June of this year. It's my jazz quartet. Um, you know, the beat music records are uh, heavy. You know, or live more in an electronic world. Right. And um, the Jazz Quartet is a purely acoustic band where it's, um, you know, saxophone, piano, bass, drums. And, you know, I just, I, I love that sound. I mean, it's, it's a sound that we all know. And um, I come from acoustic music, really. You know, my, my heroes, all those jazz influences, um, you know, are always a part of me, but they're often presented in, in kind of pretty manipulated ways. You know, you mm -hmm. might not know when I'm playing a beat on a drum machine that there's some Roy Haynes influence in there. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so, so now um, this was my humble attempt to, to step foot into, into their world and, um, you know, just kind of um, pay homage to all those influences and, and make a new statement for myself, um, you know, I got my, my bebop kit, 18, 12, 14, and cranked them up and, you know, just playing two cymbals and really, really, uh, forced myself into a certain box, intentionally nice. restricting myself, um, sonically. And yeah, so I wrote again, wrote, wrote a little repertoire, wrote like 10 songs and, and that was a challenge to write for, for this instrumentation. And, um, you know, I was always so spoiled as a composer to have, have access to, like, all these different sonic textures using, you know, electric bass with effects or synthesizers. But now it's, you know, saxophone, piano, acoustic bass, drums. It's, you know, it is what it is. Right. So what, do you, what do you do most of your writing on piano? Yeah, yeah, I have a Wurlitzer in my apartment, and then cool. I also use the the computer as an aid because my my piano chops are are limited. So I you know it's I can't always you know keep the bass line going and shred through the melody or right. you know get all the chords and stuff. So I use the computer for I do a lot of demoing in Ableton Live just to hear hear everything working together. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So yeah, that's the um, that's the thing. So I mean, those came out in September. This record will come out in June. I'm already thinking about the next beat music record, trying to write new stuff. You know, I'm, I'm uh, it's 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 really inspiring to have multiple outlets. Um, and I feel like by having having different outlets, I can give more, um, you know, give more focus and attention to each knowing that, you know, well, no, I don't, you know, I don't need to have 
uh, a bunch of solos in in beat music with this electronic voice. I know if I if I have that Jones and I want to like do more quote unquote playing, you know, I have that outlet in the acoustic project. Right, and, right. You know, so I can definitely um, get what I need from from these a combination of these different ensembles as opposed to squeezing all my you know musical needs into one right uh, project that makes you know that makes total sense because i think that you know to echo what you're saying that you'll probably end up playing some stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to play on that record but you're like man i gotta get it all in because this is just i just have this one record i gotta do it all so yeah yeah that's a smart way of, of approaching it that way and and having the the knowledge to be able to approach it that way is, is pretty cool. Yeah. And it's, it's kicking my butt too. You know, it's right. like, it's a, you know, as a composer, there's a lot more. Um, I mean, I've been spending just as much time at the piano as I have the, the drums and inspired more than ever. It's, you know, I kind of feel like I did in my early days at the drums when you finally get that, that beat where the bass drum is with the hi-hat on the end of one and then it's alone on the uh and all, you know these little puzzles that you figure out and they're mm-hmm. like these little celebrations that you know we take for granted now it's like i'm finding that on piano like oh if i go from this chord to this chord and the voice leading of this it's like oh cool these these little you know these little victories within the process are really rewarding sure sure i you know, I played piano for nine years and sadly cannot play anything now, Well, which is so horrible. And I interviewed um, Andy Burton, who plays with uh, with John Mayer, mm-hmm. and he he's a Jersey City. He lives in Jersey City, too. Oh, um, cool. But he was saying he's like, man, don't worry. You know, you, you start playing again, and it'll come back. So I think I'm going to think I'm going to get myself a some sort of keys to start practicing on. Yeah, just sit down. The, the stuff comes out. Right. It's, that's what I do. I, I just got to sit down because it's not like I have these, these you know, harmonies going through my my brain at all all day. You know, it's like, but once I sit down and kind of hack some stuff out, it starts the flow. The mm-hmm. flow starts to be there. Yeah. Nice. So do you have a, a name for the new record yet? Yeah, it's called Family First. Nice. Nice. I like that. Yeah. So that'll be available in June, and I'm guessing it'll be, you know, through iTunes and all that stuff as well? Yeah, it'll be digitally, it'll be everywhere, um, and I'll have physical copies just through my site and at gigs and stuff, um, and yeah, we're going to play, we're going to play a release show in New York on the 4th, uh, June 4th, Thursday, June 4th, the record will come out a couple days before that, and yeah, and you know we we have some a couple weeks of touring in in Europe in October, and you know I'm just trying now to start start to manage the the balance between the two groups, mm-hmm. and um, you know figure out this nice this nice kind of equal equal distribution because I really do get so much from each outlet, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, and trying to juggle the two. Yeah, yeah, and then all you know, all the sideman stuff, which I'm, which I'm also really excited about. You know, I I get so much from that stuff too. So just trying mm-hmm. to, trying to figure it all out. Yeah, you know? man. So now, do you do you teach as well? 
I do. You know, I'm I'm not really home enough to maintain any consistent students, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, ha- I usually have a few guys through the new school each semester. They have a program where they kind of have just a list of guys, and and you can select who you want to study with. So okay. I have like three guys over there this semester, and um, yeah, I'm just doing a bunch of private stuff whenever whenever my schedule allows. I really. I really do enjoy that. So it's, it's always a pleasure when it can happen. Cool. And now if people want to follow what you're doing and they want to get your records and they, you know, they want to contact you in any way, what's the best way to find all that out? Um, markjuliana.com and you know, the, all the other, I'm, I'm Mark Juliana on all the platforms. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty straightforward. I do my best to, to keep everything up to date. Um, but uh, I really do enjoy um, avoiding those <laughs> yeah. social media whenever I can. However, um, that's, I think, where most people get their information these days. So, yeah, I, I definitely do my best to, to keep everything up to date. Cool. And I strongly urge everybody to get his the two records that you already put out, or all the past records that you have, and also the new one that's coming out, Family First. Uh, you said that's June 2nd? Or- yeah, looking like June 2nd, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yep. Thanks for that, yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, man. And Mark, thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate you taking all the time to chat, man, and I wish you nothing but more success in the future, and congratulations to all the success that you've had already. Thank you so much. It's much appreciated. Absolutely, man. And uh, thank you again. I'll be talking to you soon. Cool. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there you have it, Mr. Mark Juliana. And if you dug this interview, be sure to let him know. You can check him out at markjuliana.com or he's on Twitter and on Facebook and all that stuff. And also everything that we talked about, you can find at drummersresource.com forward slash session 97. So check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource on Instagram at drummersresource and on Twitter at drummersrsource. Also, this Wednesday, April 8th, I'm leaving for California. I'm going to the Drum Channel for three days to shoot some videos, and I'm also going to be doing a live lesson on Thursday, April the 9th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you want to check that out, you can watch it for free. Just head over to drumchannel.com. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.